1: Then the Lord said to Job, Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them.
0: Job chapter 40 verses 1 and 2 and verses 6 and 7 New Living Translation
1: I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave
0: revelation chapter 1 verses 8 and verses 17 and 18 new living translation hi i'm victoria K. welcome to another anchored by truth brought to you by crystal sea books i'm here today with r.d fierro author founder of crystal sea books and part-time mechanical engineer he changes the air filter in the air conditioner and speaking of changing things, today we are closing out the series that we've been presenting for several episodes that we've been calling The Truth in Genesis. So today we're going to be doing a bit of a recap of all the subjects that we've covered and hit the highlights of some of the major things that we've learned. Hardy, would you like to say a brief word of introduction about today's show?
2: I would. The Truth in Genesis series that we've been going through for the past several weeks was designed to allow listeners to hear a sample, and I want to emphasize that, just a sample, of the scientific evidence that is relevant to two of the most important topics that affect the subject of biblical inspiration and infallibility. The age of the universe, the age of the earth, and the origin and diversity of life. Well, one of the most important challenges facing Christians today comes to us right at the beginning of the Bible in chapter 1 where the Bible tells us that God created the heavens, the earth, and everything that exists on the earth, including all living creatures, and most especially us. Well, supposedly this claim that God created the heavens and the earth at the start is at odds with what contemporary science tells us about the universe and life. So, for a Christian in today's culture to maintain their faith in the Bible, they're asked to immediately confront the cultural challenge to the Bible's proclamation about creation. So, in effect, our culture demands that we either surrender our faith in the Bible, in its inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility, or we surrender our acceptance of science as a source of truth. I believe that we've shown through the episodes in this Truth in Genesis series that the conscientious Christian, that a Christian who seriously studies all of the available evidence, does not need to make that kind of a false choice. Your
0: contention is that we have illustrated through the episodes in the Truth in Genesis series, there is substantial scientific evidence that absolutely supports the belief that the plain language of Genesis may be accepted as literal, historical fact. And today we want to review and summarize just a few snippets of what we've learned. But before we get too far into our discussion about the serious stuff, we'd like to start by just listening to a poetic summary of the state of this debate. To do that, we want to play a portion of Crystal C's upcoming poetic series called The Genesis Saga. For today, let's listen to Part 5 of the Genesis Saga, which, aptly enough, we call The Truth in Genesis.
1: It has been many thousands of years since the start of creation's tale. So long ago was light released, now with legends of origins we are regaled. Some say that all we can see, all we can touch, taste, or feel, came from nothing and nobody. As if such an idea could be real, Some say that Heavens and Earth have always been in existence. They assuredly assert that there is no God, and they do so with great persistence. They say that atoms, energy, and space stretch back into eternity past. They find no place for a creator who's good in a cosmos that came from a blast. The laws of physics and chemistry, they say, tell us all that we need to know about how bright stars burn in the heavens and provide light throughout the cosmos. But if all that came from a bang, where did the bang come from? If no mind or architect played any part, wouldn't chaos be all that could come? The universe exhibits order and plan. Can design without a designer spread? And how can living creatures appear and arise from inanimate particles that are dead? The smallest cell holds billions of atoms, organized with exquisite precision. Did all those brilliant molecular machines come to life with no mind's decision? And those who with great vigor contend that dead things gave rise to the living when faced with those who believe otherwise often aren't very forgiving. They tell us we must turn from God and let their explanation of origins speak. But it would be easier to trust their claims if from their science the truth hadn't leaked, if the universe is protons and electrons and some energy that enables them to link, then how does this random collection give them the ability to think? Can random purposeless matter give the skill to reason and reflect. Wouldn't it take an omnipotent being, the Alpha and Omega, logic with flesh to connect? If they are right, their minds are built of particles that have no design. So why would any care what their particles dictate when their particles deny the divine? God created man in His image. Part of that image is free will. If that will is used to deny the Creator, the serpent is in the garden still. Man abused free will causing the fall as he followed foul temptation. But God knew all that would come and plan for man's reclamation. In the courts of heaven, the Glorious Three had selected a people to save. All men sin and fall short of the goal, but there's no need to lie in the grave. Men and nations. People everywhere. The true Son wants your sin to bear. He made morning stars. He makes all things new. He made all creation. He can surely save you.
0: That is a pretty amazing summary. And it rhymes. So let's go back and cover briefly some of the main points of evidence that we've learned about the truth in Genesis that support the fact that the universe and Earth aren't nearly as old as is commonly believed. Let's also talk about how it would be impossible for the random, chaotic action of inanimate atoms and molecules to spontaneously give rise to life.
2: Well, to start, let's be clear about the competing truth claims that we've been examining. The Bible clearly claims that God created the heavens and the earth and that all the life that exists on the earth, whether plants or animals, was created by God. And according to most traditional interpretations of the first chapters of Genesis, God performed His creative activity on the order of several thousands of years ago. Also, when it comes to animal life, the Bible claims that God created all the kinds of animals that exist today. So contrary to the strawman version of biblical creation that critics like to shoot at, kinds does not refer to the species that are extant today. Nor does the biblical term kind refer to any particular taxonomic level, such as an order or a genus. The term kind, as used by the Bible, primarily refers to the ability of any two animals to reproduce regardless of how those animals might be classified according to current taxonomy. That view of creation as espoused by the Bible. By contrast, the dominant view among most scientists today is that the universe isn't thousands of years old, but rather 14 billion or so years old, and that the Earth itself is about 4.5 billion years old. Also, most conventional biologists believe that life on Earth evolved from some primitive forms to more complex forms. And all this likely started with some sort of a self-replicating molecule that over time, spontaneously, somehow, mysteriously, aggregated into a single cell. So these self-replicating molecules supposedly combined, without any direction from an intelligent source, into a very complex cell... And from that cell, we see all the amazing biodiversity that we see around the globe today. So the claim by conventional science today is that life emerged without direction or instruction from any intelligent source, or as Dr. Sarfati, who was our guest for most of these shows on Truth in Genesis, as Dr. Sarfati puts it, it's a goo-to-zoo-to-you form of evolution.
0: Those are two very clearly contrasting views. But isn't there a sort of middle ground that some have termed theistic evolution? This is the view that God created everything, but then used evolution as a sort of intermediate mechanism to allow life to progress from simple forms to more complex ones, and that over time many different forms of plants and animals emerged from the process that God originated
2: you are absolutely correct that there have been various attempts to bridge the gaps between traditional biblical creationism and a materialist, secularist form of evolution. The problem is that most of these middle-ground type approaches suffer from the same faults as the ones that afflict a purely materialistic evolution, plus, for the Christian, they create additional theological or Christological problems for the Christians who hold them. For instance, and this is one that we've talked about before, but I think it bears repeating, and I don't think it can be overemphasized. One of the big problems from one of these middle grounds is that any approach that presumes that God used evolution to produce man from some lower form of prehuman hominid requires that death preceded Adam and Eve's fall. And that's even if they accept the fall as being a historical event. So, these middle ground approaches often say, well, evolution created some string, some group of pre-human bipedal hominids that ultimately walked upright and ultimately had the size brain that we do. This hypothesis says that these pre-human hominids existed, lived, and died before Adam and Eve, who were the first real humans, ever came into existence. Well, various scriptures such as Romans 5.17 tied death directly to Adam's sin. So the fact that pre-human hominids might have existed and died before Adam had his sin turns that upside down. It turns it on his head. Furthermore, if all of this is attempted to be portrayed as being allegorical, if Adam's fall wasn't a literal historical event that introduced death into a creation that God had deemed very good, Then we run into the very serious Christological problem of why was it necessary for Christ to die on the cross to undo the effects of sin. It's a very sobering proposition. If it wasn't Adam's sin that introduced death into the creation, into the cosmos, if it wasn't Adam and Eve's sin that did that, then why was it necessary as a literal historical event for Christ to die on the cross to reverse the effects of sin? one of which was death.
0: So, you're saying the middle ground approaches really don't bridge the gap and allow both sides to be right. But are you also saying that the middle grounds are subject to the same criticism scientifically as a purely secularistic evolutionism?
2: Yes, absolutely. For instance, one of the problems that we learned about insofar as evolution is concerned is the absence of transitional forms in the fossil record. And this absence of transitional forms is something that even Charles Darwin noted and lamented. Well, when you study the fossil record, what you find out is that species in the fossil record appear suddenly and fully formed, and that there are very, very few specimens that are even offered up as being transitional. And this is despite the fact that over 90% of the fossils that we know about today have been discovered since Darwin wrote The Origin of Species. One of Darwin's excuses for the fact that there were very few transitional fossils even possibly known was what he called the imperfection of the fossil record. And so Darwin hoped that subsequent discoveries would, in fact, cure this defect. Well, what's happened is we've discovered a lot more fossils, but the defect has never been cured. And ironically enough, there aren't any more convincing transitional examples in the fossil record known today than when Darwin originally lamented their absence. Now, this absence of transitional fossils would be a problem for any form of an evolutionary hypothesis, whether it's theistic or secularistic.
0: What are a couple of other examples of problems that cast doubt on the evolution, regardless of which form is being discussed?
2: Well, there's what one writer has called the failure of homology. Homology is the idea that certain structures present in different species have a structural or other biological resemblance to each other. And one of the classic examples of homology that's offered is the pattern of the bones in vertebrate limbs, and Dr. Sarfati discussed this just a little bit. In a wide variety of mammal species, for example, from bats to whales to horses to people, There's a consistent pattern of having one bone in the upper arm of the limb, such as our arms or legs, connected to two bones that are in the lower portion that are then connected to a series of five bones that have two segments in the large bone, like your thumb or big toe, or three segments in the other four lower parts. So such so-called homologous structures are thought to be evidence of common descent, In other words, what the scientists would say is that some ancient ancestor of mammals had this pattern of bones, so all the mammals in the world today that are descended from that ancestor inherited this pattern.
0: Certainly, at least on the surface, that makes sense. So what's the problem?
2: Well, the problem is that when Darwin wrote about the support that homology provides for his theory, science knew very little about embryology, the study of how life develops following conception. Today we know a lot more about embryology, and we now know that seemingly homologous structures in adult animals don't arise from similar embryological processes or from identical or similar genes. In other words, while the adult features seem to be similar, they come about into the adult animal from significantly varying developmental processes. Now this directly conflicts with the notion that these supposedly homologous structures came from a common ancestor. Because if all the common features were inherited from a common ancestor, that ancestor would have passed along its embryological features, not just the resulting adult pattern. Now, there's a very good discussion about this problem in Michael Denton's book entitled Evolution Ethereum Theory and Crisis. It's discussed in Chapter 7 for those who want to study this problem further.
0: So, just like with the fossil record... Evidence that is often used to demonstrate the truth of evolution actually has significant scientific problems. Are there any other illustrations of scientific problems with the particles-to-people view of evolution?
2: Actually, there are lots of them, and Dr. Sarfati discussed a number of them during his time in the Anchored by Truth studio. For instance? For instance, just about every proposed mechanism for how life could have arisen from non-living chemicals involved some variation on Darwin's musings about a warm little pond. In other words, the notion that the primordial oceans contained a sort of nutrient-rich broth, and that's sometimes termed a prebiotic soup. And supposedly, the chemicals necessary for life were supposed to have been present in this soup in such densities that the random collisions between just the right molecules produced abiotic organic compounds and that these abiotic organic compounds were then used to assemble the first cell, or at least the cell's precursor, whatever that would have been. The existence of these abiotically produced organic compounds is absolutely essential for this proposed scheme to have worked. Well, as Dr. Sarfati discussed, and has been discussed in many other books and scientific articles, the problem is that the rocks of purportedly great antiquity Even rocks dated that way by conventional dating methods don't contain any evidence of these abiotically produced organic compounds. And this is true even of the so-called Dawn Rocks of Western Greenland that were supposedly laid down within three or four hundred million years of the Earth's formation. And the same thing is true of all of the other rocks of similar antiquity that we've discovered. These ancient rocks, even rocks that have been dated by conventional dating methodologies, don't contain any evidence that at any point in the Earth's history there was ever this nutrient-rich, prebiotic, organic broth. So the rocks that we know about just don't contain a key element that would be necessary for this hypothesis about how life could have arisen from non-living chemicals. The rocks just don't contain any evidence that that very essential element is actually true.
0: So the rocks contain no evidence of this prebiotic soup. And without it, the whole origin hypothesis falls apart. But some scientists now believe that the earliest life was formed underwater, near these heating vents in the deep ocean.
2: Yes, that hypothesis is frequently mentioned in the ocean exploration programs on one or another science channel. The problem with this theory is that all life depends on very lengthy chains of amino acids that are called polypeptides. Well polypeptides won't form in the presence of excess water. And that's true even if the requisite amino acids were present. Even if those requisite amino acids were present, they wouldn't combine into these very lengthy chains, these polypeptides. So again, if all of these amino acids that are necessary to create cellular life were present underwater, they would never have created an essential precursor to the cell, which is these lengthy polypeptide chains. So again, that means there's another absolute chemical barrier to life starting underwater.
0: In other words, the difficulties against life having arisen spontaneously from non-living chemicals are starting to stack up like bricks in a brick wall. Are there any other bricks that are also problematic? How about the famous experiments by Stanley Miller and Harold Urey? Didn't they create the chemicals needed by life when they stimulated a chemical medium with methane, ammonia, hydrogen, and water using electrical discharges?
2: Well, Urey and Miller were very successful at creating organic compounds. That much is true, but the good news pretty much ends there. How so? Well, first problem is that there is no evidence that the conditions that Urey and Miller used in their lab were present in the primordial Earth. At a minimum, Uri and Miller used an oxygen-free atmosphere because oxidation would quickly break down any organic chemicals that formed. Think about rust. But there is evidence of oxidation in supposedly ancient rocks, so it's far more likely that the early atmosphere did contain oxygen in contravention to what Uri and Miller used in their laboratory beakers. Next problem is that amino acids come in two varieties, levorotary and dextrorotary. The amino acids that support life are all levorotary. Dextrorotary forms are lethal. Well, the combination of a levorotary and a dextrorotary amino acid is called a racemate. Erie and Miller's experiments, in other sense, have only produced racemates, never pure levo rotary amino acids. A third problem is that the amino acids that they produced were captured in very special traps that they designed, especially for those experiments. If those traps hadn't been present, the amino acids that they produced would have been broken down before they could have been determined to be present or detected. Moreover, Uri and Miller's experiment, where they produced the first of their amino acids, were not the first experiments that they had conducted. They had done others without getting anything at all. So they kept adjusting the conditions until they finally used a combination that actually produced some form of amino acids. Again, they produced amino acids that won't support life, but they did produce amino acids. Well, this points out the fact that they kept changing the conditions to finally get a result. Even when they got a result, that involved the application of a considerable amount of intelligence. So that was the exact opposite of the operation of blind chance. They were applying intelligence in order to generate their amino acids. Those amino acids wouldn't support life, but they were using intelligence to, It wasn't blind chance.
0: Wow. That last thought really forces you to think, doesn't it? Even if a team of scientists today were successful at producing life in a test tube or laboratory beaker, that wouldn't demonstrate that life could have formed randomly or chaotically, because, presumably, the scientists would have been applying intelligent guidance and decision-making at every step within their process. And of course, that's assuming they had duplicated exactly the conditions on earth at the time life is supposed to have formed, and that is, and always will remain, unknowable. Well, this truly has been a remarkable series, and yet we have only skimmed the surface of all these topics. But the takeaway for the series, as well as from each episode, is that faithful, committed Christians can believe the truth of Genesis without having to give up their confidence in real science. As you would expect of an almighty and all-knowing Creator, He has provided His special revelation in a way that is entirely consistent with the way that He created and sustains the universe. Sounds like a great time to praise our Creator in prayer. A Prayer
3: of Praise for the Creator Mighty and Everlasting Father, you are a kind and merciful God. You have given us eyes to see, fingers to touch, ears to hear, and minds to understand. You bring us into the full and certain knowledge of your transcendent, creative, and Power. When men gazed at the stars and sky, they could perceive the depth but not measure the distance. Through your grace, man now has the ability to understand that your cosmos is more supremely complex and vast than ever. Could have been known before. What mortal mind can fathom this magnificence? Praise be to you, Father of the galaxy, and praise to your Son who created at your right hand. It is because of his descent that we will one day be lifted up. So we pray and give thanks in
0: His name. Amen. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics. So if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where We're not famous, but our boss boss is.